back to another episode of Public Problems. Here yet again, I am with some Bush School students who spent a semester um, working on a research project, and um, they tackled what I think is a really interesting topic that I was able to learn a good bit from from them. And but before we do that, I'm going to give the group members an opportunity to introduce themselves. We are down one individual, Mr. James Baldwin. He may join us, but in the interim, uh, each of the group members, if you would, please introduce yourselves. Um, I'm Carolyn Smith. Good afternoon, Christian Pinero. I'm AJ Leinberger, and I'm Edgar Senior. Excellent. So let me begin um, by saying thank you to the group for your work. Um, I think this is a, a really interesting and certainly under um, appreciated or um, underpaid attention to topic. So I'm glad that you brought this uh, uh, topic to the forefront for this project. And the project really is talking about American colonial territories and their lack of representation. Um, and I think this is a really interesting topic, but I'm curious as to why. It was the topic you went with, given that you could study uh, anything that you like. Why was it that you picked this particular issue of voting rights suppression in America's colonial territories? Well, to start off, I think, um, well, this we all agree that this was also uh, an issue that's not very known, as you mentioned, Professor. And it kind of hits home for me, because um, I am Puerto Rican, so my parents have always ingrained to me to, like, you know, know your culture, know your background, and... Growing up, I, you know, in high school and undergrad, in my history courses, we never really talked about this side of the history. We always kind of, you know, broad brushed through the Spanish-American War and just never really, like, what happened to these places that got colonized and what today. So, uh, you know, going back, I thought this, this is a great uh, topic to do for our second paper, and we kind of got, you know, unanimous uh, consent from everyone. And yeah, it's amazing how much, uh, I mean, so I grew up in the state of Georgia, um, and how much this is just not something that we don't talk about the fact that we have colonies and that they don't have the same voting rights that uh, people in, uh, not in the colonies do. And so uh, I'm glad you're drawing attention to it. And um, also, uh, it, sorry that you didn't have the same voting rights as the rest of us um, and your family. So hopefully drawing some attention to this might help remedy that over time. So, <laughs> well, luckily I was born in the United States, but... Okay, all right, fair enough. All right, so let's dive in. What um what what's going on here? Why what voting rights do individuals in America's colonial territories not have? I mean what's what's the underlying issue here? So I think um where we kind of started out when we were discussing where we were gonna go, what direction we were gonna head when we were analyzing this problem is just first we um, identified all the U.S. territories that have permanent residents, and so there's five of them, um, Puerto Rico, Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, American Samoa, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And all of the um, residents actually in these territories are considered United States citizens, except for those that live in American Samoa. They're considered United States nationals instead of citizens, but they have the opportunity to apply for citizenship if they choose to do so. Um, but they are not represented in um, the House of Representatives or in the Senate. Um, they, Puerto Rico does have one delegate in the House, but they do not have voting or they do not have voice or vote. Um, so it's really kind of 
Stop patronizing. You're welcome to come in. Yeah, you're welcome to come attend, but you cannot participate. But we also drew comparisons to the size of these territories with regard to like the population. So there's almost four million people living and residing in these territories, which is more than the six least populous states in the United States. Um, and so there's almost 4 million voices that are never heard in their federal um, government elections. So we felt it was very, very big issue. Yeah. And also probably the most uh, noticeable thing yeah. is that they can't vote presidential elections, obviously. Mm-hmm. And what, what's interesting is that a lot of them have similar historical backgrounds. So a lot of them started out as naval bases during uh, the Spanish-American War or like one of the world wars. And that's that's what kind of piqued United States interest in these areas. And so when they first started out, they all started out essentially as like naval bases run by the Navy, U.S. Navy. And so in in turn, they had a lot of people essentially like from those areas enlisting in the Navy, enlisting in the U.S. military. And it's just a, it's kind of sad that they don't like a lot of them serve, a lot of them are veterans, and they have no say in determining their commander-in-chief yeah. and their major elections that they feel they should be a part of. Yeah, it sounds a lot like uh, the rallying cry of the original American colonies, right? Um, being yeah. uh, taxed and having to serve under the jurisdiction of, an, uh, of a government that, you, that doesn't represent you, that you don't have a voice in, which was one of the core kind of reasons for the um, um, the uh, the uh, I'll get it here in a minute for the American Revolutionary War and, De- and Declaration of Independence. It'll come to me. It'll come to me. Um, and so it really is kind of wild that, given that is the U.S.'s history, that we still um, have uh, people uh, that are American citizens that that voices aren't heard in the federal elections. So. Let's walk through, uh, Edgar, you mentioned some of the history, and maybe other folks can jump in here. I assume the history across these territories is a little different, and in the report, you you lay out the historical background of each of these um, five territories. So maybe walk me through a little bit of the historical background of uh, Puerto Rico, Guam, the U.S. Virgin Islands, American Samoa, and the Northern Mariana Islands. Um, so with Puerto Rico, they were essentially got, they were inhabited and started, the inhabitation started like an early 15th century, um, by the Taino and the Arawak natives. Mm -hmm. And eventually in 1493, Christopher Columbus came and colonized it, uh, was colonized by Spain from that point on all the way until the Spanish-American War in 1889. Um, and they didn't become, like, that's when, again, the United States came in, and it wasn't until 1917 through the jones Chatsworth Act that they became official U.S. territories and were granted U.S. citizenship. Um, however, their citizenship is statutory, which means that the citizenship is granted by an act of Congress, and so their citizenship and freedom is not guaranteed by the Constitution and can be taken away by a simple vote from Congress. And moving on to Guam. Um, 
Guam was uh, started being colonized in 1668 um, by the Spanish again, uh, led by Father San Vitores, and that lasted until again the Spanish-American War, where the American warships seized Guam. Um, Guam was originally a part of the Northern Mariana Islands, and when the United States seized Guam specifically, and they became the prime location uh, because like uh, for an advantage in, in the war because it was between Hawaii and the Philippines and for that reason the president at the time which is William McKinley uh, decided to claim it and make it a major naval base and it wasn't until the Treaty of Paris that gave the United States um, political and civil rights. Um, well, the Treaty, the, the Treaty of Paris is what is where we kind of get where they became part of the United States, like US territories, and it says that political and civil rights of the native inhabitants will be determined by Congress again. And in 1901, the Guam people of Guam started expressing their satisfaction with the United States and sending petitions and letters to Washington D.C. describing the regimes of the military government because uh, the, as I mentioned before, like uh, when since they were na originally just naval bases and used as naval bases, they their entire little areas and territories were run by uh, leaders of the navy, and so. <laughs> They didn't really have any like self-governing governing powers at all, and so eventually they got tired of it, and so they were right. Uh, two thirds of the entire population signed a petition, arguing that the, the Guam be placed under civilian rule. Um, but the petition didn't pass, and eventually it died out. And it was until 1950 that Guam finally gained some type of like formal governing documentation, mm -hmm. and that was the Organic Act. The Organic Act gave uh, the citizens of Guam U.S. citizenship, but the territory still lacked self-governance because the governor was appointed at the time, and the act pretty much set up the entire government system as well. Yeah, one of the things about Guam that I noticed in your report that I thought was uh, was <clears throat> really interesting, and <clears throat> also just you know just so er uh, so um, like like reminiscent of imperialism, I suppose, is that Guam has more people enlisted in the military than any other state. And yet those citizens are not allowed to vote for their commander in chief, which seems just so imperialistic <laughs> that it's amazing to me and that it's allowed. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it from a military strategic point, like being close to Asia and that part of the, in the world, it is a very strong, you know, military, of course, military is one of the, dominant things in the United States in terms of ideology, so we want to make sure we have that power. But as you mentioned with veterans, you know, they have the closest base is Hickam Air Force Base, which is in Honolulu, Hawaii. That's the closest base that people from Guam, veterans, if they want to get like health services or, or veteran services, have to fly there. Uh, and that's like their only place to go to. That, that's the closest location because they don't have any resources themselves. And, you know, for those who don't have the means to just pack up, you know, and get a plane trip to Hawaii, you know, to get medical care, which is probably going to cost you several hundred or several thousand dollars anyway, is very disappointing. 
And is the case, is there, uh, is this pretty similar for the U.S. Virgin Islands, American Samoa, and the North Mariana Islands? Is there anything that's more unique to those territories that are making them different from Puerto Rico and Guam uh, in terms of their uh, their access to voting uh, representation? American Samoa is definitely the, the most unique one because as uh, Caroline mentioned earlier, uh, they're U.S. national nationalists. They're not actual citizens. Um, so essentially, they're not born with citizenship. The only time that they are born and considered citizens is if they have one parent that's already a U.S. citizen. And then, I mean, if they're not, then they have to go through the entire citizenship process just like any other foreign national person would have to undergo. And they're not treated any differently. They still have to pay all the fees. They still have to, like, go through the entire process as if they're not in in the U.S. territory. Um, So that is really, like, disheartening to them. Like, a lot of them feel like they're second-class citizens because they have to go through that. Uh, so like they're kind of saying like, oh yeah, you're U.S. territory, but you're the only part. You're the only ones that are not U.S. citizens. It's kind of uh, so like there's a lot of controversy in in that area in the American Samoa because a lot of them are like, well, what's the point of us being a part of the U.S. territory if we're not? We don't. We can't enjoy anything that America has to offer. Yeah. So there's like half of them say that they want. Uh, independence from America completely, and then the other half are saying that they want to just be an actual state uh, of the United States. I would say, uh, with that exception, like that uh, Samoans are U.S. nationals, it's pretty uh, similar across the board yeah. for all the territories that like it's a lot harder to get services and, and uh, representation. So I would say it's, it's pretty similar across all the territories. Minus that, um, and for um, just another caveat for like American Samoans, they can't go back and forth from the United States to American Samoa. Like they lose their rights once they leave the United States. But if they were to come back to the United States, then they get all the citizens' rights back. So it's kind of like picking and choosing based on location, geographical area where you are. That you kind of you know you earn your rights when you get to land, but then you leave, and then you lose them like you had before. And it's, there's not a strict policy or any you know, legislation that deems this, like, black and white, it's always just been up to the... Uh, I really don't like these things. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, like... Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Georgia, which is, you know, one of the original 13 colonies, and so it's like, all this history that we learned growing up was all the battles fought for uh, the ability to represent yourselves and to be own independent citizens and so this is just such an anathema to my you know what i was raised with thinking about america is that we is that that we still have territories where people have our suffers kind of second class citizenship status which just seems you know given the the symbols and the and the kind of uh cultural rhetoric around american ideals it's just it seems uh, it's just wild to me that this is still the case um, in these territories and that we haven't progressed from this um, this imperialistic mindset of how to treat colonies as if it was the 1800s or something and that we haven't progressed past that in the terms of rights and services that we give to people who are, by all measures, American citizens. So what is the... 
you cover some of the cases on this, which are called the insular cases. So what um, what have been some of the, what are insular cases, I guess, first? I'm sure it's probably not clear to listeners what an insular case is. And then walk me through maybe a couple of them as examples of why they're important in this issue. So the insular cases were actually a series of cases that were um, written in 1901 by the very same Supreme Court that um, actually made the Plessy versus Ferguson decision. Uh Um, So these cases are um, like basically the four important cases, most important cases that determine, that set the precedent for um, how we treat citizens of these um, territories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we basically, we wanted to, like you were saying, go back and see where this, like, uh, where their, their status came from. And basically it can be traced back to these cases where their uh, real status became apparent. Um, but yeah, um, the, some of the important cases in, uh, so the first one was in, uh, or, or a lot of them occurred in, uh, 1901 and, um, a few were, some years after, but uh, the main uh, bulk of them occurred in 1901. But that's what's also, again, so frustrating about it is, uh, you know, we trace it back to these these cases that happened in 1901, and they still, the effects of them are still, like, seen today. Um, but, but yeah, we basically, um, when looking, looking back, uh, these cases were were the reason for the status of these territories. But uh, anyway, the first the first uh, major case was Delima versus Bid- Bidwell, um, and that was in 1901. And so uh, base, this case basically concerned the Delima Sugar Importing Company, and they, they challenged a tax uh, that was levied on imports from Puerto Rico uh, was invalid because Puerto Rico is now a U.S. territory. And the Supreme Court actually ruled in favor of Delima, um, basically on, on Puerto Rico's side, stating that taxes were prohibited on exports from one part of the U.S. Um, to the other. And um, it was a 5-4 decision, so it was pretty close. And um, Justice um, Henry Billings Brown was basically the deciding vote, and he's famously <coughs> um, on uh Plessy versus Ferguson, and he, as you'll see in other insular cases, uh, becomes a crucial vote. Um, so yeah, it was a 5-4 decision, really close, but on the surface, you would think, you know, that ruled in favor of Puerto Rico, so, you know, from that point, you would you would think Puerto Rico's on a track to, to get, uh, you know, full uh, status, but then then comes Downs versus Bidwell, and that occurs right after Delima, and it's basically in direct contradiction to uh, Delima, and it, it similarly dealt with taxes levied on imports from Puerto Rico, um, but the difference between the two cases was that Congress had recently passed the Foraker Act approving those taxes, um, so Downs who's on the side of Puerto Rico, um, was basically expecting the same same kind of precedent to stand from the Delima case. Um, um, but instead, this uh, Supreme Court held that Congress possessed valid authority to levy this tax. And uh, Justice uh, Henry Billings Brown, who was 
in the majority for Dilema actually essentially flipped for this one. Um, and he said Puerto Rico was a territory pertinent and belonging to the states, but not a, not a part of the United States within the meaning of the revenue clauses, the constitution. Um, and this language kind of gave way to what was going to be called the doctrine of territorial incorporation. Um, so basically this case, <coughs> excuse me, um, separated incorporated territories from, uh, um, unincorporated territories and uh, incorporated territories were described as like full members of the American family and likely candidates for statehood. And then unincorporated territories were seen as like foreign in the domestic sense, which was the language they used, which is pretty vague. Uh, but from this perspective, um, basically how the constitution would apply uh, to a territory was based on its status, incorporated or unincorporated. So this is why this case was really important. Uh, and um, so, building from building from those two, I know that you cover a couple more in the report. But um, what is you know? There's a couple more here, which uh, we'll just highlight real quick. Are um, Gonzalez and Williams in 1904. Door versus U.S. in 1904, Balzac in Puerto Rico in 1922. It's kind of uh, how you round it out in the report. Um, but give me the give me the broad takeaway. What are the implications for these territories once uh, once you kind of work through these insular cases? So yeah, when you basically take like the Delima and Downs decisions, for example, when it's taken together, it kind of represents the notion that unincorporated status can be utilized in different ways by the U.S. to achieve its goals. So they're basically saying it's up to Congress to um, decide what the status of this is. So they were saying Puerto Rico, for um, certain purposes, was, was more like a state. Um, but then for, for other purposes, um, for example, some of the, the language they used um, was that... Um, the U.S. territories were inhabited by alien races and might not understand Anglo-Saxon laws. Um, so it, it, yeah. it basically, I it see. Basically, the, yeah, I see at the end of that section there where the, the actual quote from James Kent uh, here, a jurist and legal scholar, says the establishment of distant territorial governments ruled according to will and pleasure, which is just great, would have a very natural tendency, as all pro-consort governments have had to abuse and oppression as if <laughs> the U S government wasn't abusing and oppressing these people and denying them their rights to vote. I mean, it's just like the, to your point, kind of the, the, the racism or the just, uh, that's the only word I can come up for it. But the racism of this is just so shocking again, as we look at it in, I mean, I guess not shocking when I mean, we know the U S has a history of, of racism. I guess it's not, it's not shocking, but, um, just the, just the blatantness of like, nope, these people just are too, are too dumb, I suppose, to be able to govern themselves. And if we let them have rights, they're just going to abuse and oppress each other. And it's like, it's just, yeah. it's just crazy. Right. And at the same time, they're saying, oh, for these certain purposes, we'll, we'll grant them more, more rights or more, more privilege when it benefits the U.S. 
so that's what we we found pretty pretty staggering um but also just going back to plessy versus ferguson we thought surely there would be a case since 1901 that kind of um you know would, would reverse some of these things because plessy was obviously reversed by brown versus board so you know american mm -hmm. opinion changed but you don't really see that like any cases that kind of picked up steam just um kind of lost it when they made it up to the supreme court or even in, in lower courts like you just never really saw to this day you see the insular cases being cited um as as reasoning for like even uh, even as recent as 2018 uh, as reason for uh, not granting the territories more rights and um, it's it just doesn't seem like a valid justification uh, especially given that brown versus board was overturned so um, i don't know it just... so, so i hear what i hear you saying is that maybe in 2018 racism isn't a reason to deny people rights <laughs> all right well let's keep moving um because i think we've made the point that these territories are treated differently in a very old school what we would hope would be old school although it turns out maybe it's not that old school imperialistic mindset what effect has this had on the actual territories and their social structures you know and a few different things the first one being here taxation but how does this uh, how has this played out and actually kind of harming I suppose the social structures of these colonies or territories? <laughs> so James is here now. <laughs> hey, James joined us. Welcome, James. <laughs> As we're recording this, it is uh, November fifth. It'll be a little time before this is published, but there are a few things going on and around College Station today. So you are. Uh, you are forgiven for being late, sir. My my wife actually is also um, caught up in the uh, caught up in the traffic of today's goings on. So um, welcome, uh, welcome, and uh, let's dive right into it. Okay, thank you, thank you. Well, some of the uh, implications that we sort of found, or some of the problems with social structure that we found in those count, uh, territories, are for one in Puerto Rico. Uh, you will see a lot of poverty as far as like social structure just because uh, one example would be the debt being bought up by certain by uh, certain businesses buying up the debt and then those countries not being able to pay the debt back but since they're not states they're not able to file for bankruptcy so that sort of puts the states in sort of an indentured slavery mode because they have to continuously pay back debt that they can't really make enough money to pay, back, pay it back for. Uh, another thing is that majority of those territories were used originally as military bases. So they originally started off as being ran by the Navy or being ran directly by the president or by some type of military section. And so the people didn't have a lot of say so in the way the government is actually formed or the way it runs. Uh, as far as development of a workforce and development of the economy, they can't really develop an economy or anything because they're subject to the minimum wage laws and the uh, work laws of the United States. But they don't really have a say so, so they can't really pay people more, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. 
just an important point about taxation. There's a lot of, uh, I guess, federal funding that is uh, yes. pretty that's uh, handed out to states pretty like normally. But like, for example, Medicaid uh, given to Puerto Rico is capped, and uh, Puerto Rico and other other territories too. They they don't pay income tax, but they pay. Um, other forms of taxes like payroll taxes and business taxes, um, estate taxes, and so on. So they do contribute um, a lot in taxes, and um, they're not they they aren't granted some of the the same tax credits that um, American families have. So, like James was saying, with poverty, um, a, a family of four in the United States has more considerable take home pay. Um, than a family in, in Puerto Rico, just because of some of the tax credits they get and um, just things like that, um, I guess, play out every day. Yeah, another one that I think uh, happened <clears throat> more recently, or <clears throat> as recently, in 2017, um, was uh, a hurricane, in particular, the devastation it caused to Puerto Rico. And I remember this stuff playing out as it was happening last year and um, all of the political jockeying that went along with that. But what role does access to disaster relief or not access to disaster relief play out in the mainland of the U.S. compared to these territories? I mean, well, since Trump became president, it really don't know farewell in the mainland, but in the islands, it's even worse. Uh, looking at Hurricane Maria when it hit, the one you're referring to when it hit Puerto Rico last year, uh, almost 80% of the island was, was without light. Almost 80% of the island was without clean water. And this was for four months. Uh, I think it's an estimated $10 billion that the territories miss out a year, miss out on a year for not being states. So it's sort of like if something happens out there, there's no really act in Congress to get a fix for it because they don't have any voter strength in Congress. They only have representation in the House of Representatives. So it's not really anybody to really lobby or advocate on their behalf. What's interesting too is uh, the Stafford Act, under the Stafford Act, U.S. territories are defined as equally with states in, in terms of uh, disaster relief. It should be given like equal attention, but that's clearly not the case. Um, and I also think just it didn't really help. I think some people were, were saying the president or, uh, you know, our, our leadership um, was kind of lacking. And I think I think in, in, in terms of the response to Maria, it kind of also not, not just didn't get the disaster relief they needed, but I think it kind of reinforced a second class uh, status, at least in some people's view that, um, you know, like, uh, we're going to help yeah, the mainland. Yeah, the but... fact that they don't get priority, like, you can have a, a tornado in Nebraska or a flood in Louisiana, and that would be, that would carry more weight as a first response move than a major storm that would hit Puerto Rico or a different island because of the <laughs> And I think that we're doing, you know, as citizens collectively in this country, we're doing a disservice to those by picking and choosing which, you know, natural disasters we think are more important. Especially because, like, instead of advocating or trying to get support or trying to, you know, 
conjure up some help. President Trump just said, well, you guys just mismanaged your budget, so that's not my problem, yeah. which under the Stafford Act really doesn't hold. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the mate, I think it speaks to a larger problem. Ben, they are territories, and territories fall under the jurisdiction of the president. Uh, the president isn't elected by individual on ter- in the territories because they can, they don't vote in presidential elections, so he really doesn't have an incentive or any motive to accommodate them. He's going to accommodate people who he thinks are going to get him reelected. Yeah, I think that's a, a good point, and and it builds on uh, a comment uh, or a section in your report where you talk about um, the implications of inequality. And you have here where you mentioned that in 2017, uh, Puerto Rico held its fifth referendum on whether or not to join the republic in which uh, 90 – this is just – I mean, again, some of these things are just – can't make this stuff up, right? I mean, it's just wild. But in which 97% voted in favor of statehood. So why why can't these territories get statehood if they if they want it? What's what's going what's going on here? Okay, so for them to gain statehood, okay, them as U.S. territories is something that's a vote uh, act of Congress. So it's sort of like the Voters' Right Act that it can be gutted with just one vote in Congress. So thinking about that, it's not a constitutional uh, commandment that says that they have to be uh, states. So they're not protected by the Constitution. Uh, back to your question. For them to become states, it would have to be bipartisanship. But looking at how close the last couple of elections would be, um, one specifically that we looked at was Gore versus Bush, that only 5% difference in the Electoral College. Being that majority of these territories, well, all the territories are liberal, they're going to vote Democrat. So it's never going to be a bipartisan uh, vote that says that they want to become states because if they became states, it would shift the uh, power structure to mostly Democrats for the next couple of years until Republicans can build a base in those territories. Mm. So good old voter suppression rears its head again, huh? Is that? So... The wording of the referendum that was placed to Puerto Ricans last year was misleading. So many people who were thinking that they wanted to vote for statehood, they had to really read between lines. It was very, like, they were doing a disservice to them in terms of, like, the way it was reported and how it got out to the people. So because 97% claimed that they wanted statehood, the way it was worded in terms of, like, keeping the Commonwealth status, which is what Puerto Rico and the Northern Mariana Islands have, which in a way, it gives them more leverage and territories because it allows them to have a constitution and actual like legislature. But they also don't; they, they still aren't granted like actual voting power. So the way that that was processed was also very bad. And um, another thing, we sort of looked at the electoral college. If you go down to the addendum, it shows the number of voter strength. I mean, the number of electoral votes that each state has, and it shows the impact. If the five territories were made into were made states and given electoral votes, like you know, each state has to have at least three because they have two senators and one representative. So what we did was we took the states with over thirty electoral votes and we took two from them. The states with eleven to twenty-nine electoral votes and took one from them, and then we divided those and 
the states with under 10 electoral votes, we left those the same. And we transferred those extra electoral votes and gave those to the territories. So Puerto Rico, you see, it has seven electoral votes. That's sort of the average amount of electoral votes that a state that we have in the union currently will have. And in other three, ter I mean, other four territories, we have those with three electoral votes. But you can sort of see like a decrease in some of the states that would have voted Republican and an increase in the number of electoral votes the Democrats would have had. So you can see like the sort of impact it would have on the next couple of elections or that it would have had on past elections had they been voted into the union. And like for that piece in, in political demographics, it makes sense that the Trump administration won't move forward because Puerto Ricans are generally, they always tend to vote Democratic. So right. in a Republican-led president, you know, uh, in Congress, they would be failing themselves if they were to allow them to become a state because that risks them losing their party affiliation, which, of course, you know, runs the country these days. Is what what side of the spectrum we call it? To be fair, too, like, <coughs> ah, excuse me, um, some of these um, cases or like uh, referendums happened like during the Obama administration too, but like Congress never really took action or or no one really just did anything about it so like while there is some like partisanship at play i think it's also a bigger issue of just no one is like paying attention to it and um it's just kind of an issue that's continued yeah so even under democratic control it's not like since 1901 the democrats have done much to change this either right so um Walk me through then what we can do about this or what your recommendations and solutions are. I think we have a little bit of a, a political gridlock that seems hard to overcome or maybe just a political unawareness. Um, I mean, maybe uh, since this has uh, played out under both the uh, Democrat and Republican administrations that it's some, uh, some, something to do with political gridlock and something to do with just lack of care, I suppose. But what might we do to go from where we are now to a better situation for these territories? So we identified um, what we thought would be the most, the three key policy dilemmas that we uh, thought were the most important. And so these come from the existing laws that were granted during the insular cases that we use as precedent. Um, the first is that cases limit um, territorial residents from fully expressing acts of civic engagement, which would be voting. These cases institute the archaic idea that democracy and colonialism are fully compatible and that these cases allow the notion of racial superiority to not only be utilized, but acceptable. So our three um, solutions, proposed solutions, attack and um, basically just tackle these three policy dilemmas. Yeah, so our solutions to those that we put together as a group were our first policy solution would be to get, give the delegates voting power in Congress. And I know my other members mentioned earlier that they have delegates that can be represented in Congress, but you know they can mitigate meetings, they can be a part of the action and have their opinions heard, but they themselves can't vote for their own policies that they want to change, which, you know, of course, kind of stifles the whole idea of the individual freedom and the aspect of, you know, American rights and liberty and democracy that we kind of value ourselves on. So that obviously, and given, of course, these solutions are very, you know, would depend on all, you know, either amendment changes or full support by the Congress, which are in this political sphere, very unlikely, but um, those are probably the best solutions to move forward from that one. So um, our second solution 
would be to give the territories electoral votes based on population. Uh, James mentioned that um, the, there are states each get electoral votes, of course, during the presidential election. And one of the caveats that we also mentioned was that um, D.C., although it's not a state or a territory, it is granted three electoral votes as of 1964 when legislation was passed. And that kind of stirs the pot a bit for these other territories who feel that why does D.C. get, you know, a sense to voice their own opinions because it's the bubble of Washington. But we who have more, you know, uh, Puerto Rico has 3.3 million people compared to D.C. is about 690,000. So they're even more out proportionate and they're still not heard. So we just think based on common sense and, you know, <laughs> the continuity of like continuity of the United States that giving them at least three uh, electoral votes should be substantial enough. And well, that can, that doesn't even have to change because uh, D.C. Has, has always had three and that's just their precedent, no matter how much their population increases. So we can also give that same um, kind of feature to these territories, too. Um, and then our final solution was probably the, you know, the one that goes all in enact statehood or independence of territories upon if they're if they're agreed upon the residents. So we want to take in consideration that the opinions and the mindset of these territory residents are going to be valid. We don't want to you know demand that they become states or independent if they don't want to, but if it suits their economic needs, if it suits their political voice, um, we think that could be an option for them to do so. And we've seen uh, as we mentioned Puerto Rico and Guam having a history of passive referendums. So Hopefully, if they can move forward, the Northern Mariana Islands, American Samoa, and Virgin Islands can follow suit eventually. If they can see the Just something I wanted to add on to that, too, is that um, you don't really see anything happening on, like, like Congress would be the one to, if, if states were to uh, have a referendum and vote on being a state, Congress could get it through, but you don't really see them saying, like, hey, here's what we want from a state. So I think it's an like an interesting case to make too that uh, uh, Congress could say like, hey, if we want you to be a state, like here's what you should do. Like I think that's another like angle to look at it because that's never really happened. They just cite the insular cases and kind of leave them uh, leave the territories in limbo between like independence and a state. So I think if they had a clear like, hey, this is what a clear saying of hey this is what we want to state then you can imagine some clear guidelines of here is the process for becoming a state if you're if the if this territory wants to become a state you need to have a referendum that's passed by a supermajority and you need to do xyz type things um <clears throat> doesn't seem like that would be super complicated to come up with all right well um this is an interesting one. I really appreciate your research here, and often, not maybe not too often, but occasionally these reports get me a little fired up, and as you can see tonight, this one has me quite frustrated um, about just the buoyancy in which this is in contradiction to American values. So, is there anything that we haven't covered yet, or that we haven't mentioned in the project, uh, or in the report yet, that you think is important to leave the listeners with? Well, I would say just I mean, the fact that your reaction, that you get fired up with this conversation, I think speaks volumes to what can happen to the majority of people in the United States who don't know about this issue. And, you know, the first step of solving a problem is recognizing there is one. 
I think the fact that this is so muddled in and, and back of people's minds, they don't, they're not paying attention to territory. It's the last thing I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I think having facilitating this conversation and just making people aware would hopefully start people paying attention that these people are also, they're not just citizens, but they are human beings too. Mm-hmm. And that we need to treat them with the same rights that you know, the United States has been founded on. Yeah, I think when you start from a place of like, these are our, our American values. And uh, if you just, I think it could be appealing to a lot of people if you just say like, hey, here's the, here's what we think uh, should happen with these territories. And we think this precedent that we keep citing is, is outdated and, and doesn't align with our American values, but here's a solution that may, I think if you just make the case um, and, and, uh, and not treat these territories as second class as second class citizens. Um, I think it could be appealing to a lot of people. Yeah, I, mean, I agree. I think a big piece of this is also just awareness. James, were you going to say something? I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say uh, a big piece of it for me is that this country was founded on the rights of self determination, and as like we move forward, uh, we want those civil rights, and you see. Americans, they're fighting self-determination. I think now it's time to take the next step into giving what we call U.S. nationals or that's from these U.S. territories their right to self-determination. Like the United States doesn't have the right, but like even amongst the states in the United States, they pretty much do what they want outside of like federal government and now certain mandates was the state of the union. But these territories deserve the same rights, uh, like. Just said Puerto Rico has over 3.3 million people. It's collectively they have over 4 million people. That's over. That's more than the population for over 21 states. So Washington, they have the same rights. So why should their rights be ignored? Um, yeah, it seems like a pretty. Uh, it seems like a pretty clear cut case in line with the Constitution and American values. Uh, to me, I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of. Uh, ambiguity about this and uh, practicing colonialism in 2018, particularly given the um, the U.S.'s um, own values. So, okay, team. Well, um, thank you so much. Uh, it's uh, been great talking with you about these things, and uh, thank you so much for your work. And I'm really looking forward uh, to sharing this episode in particular because I think this is one of those cases where if more people were aware of, of what's going on with the territories in the U.S., that um, it might help spur action, because I'm not sure that people are aware. I, I certainly um, was not fully aware until this group started talking about it, and particularly the extent to it. So I appreciate the work you've done here. I'm looking forward to sharing this. Um, so thanks for your time. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye.